This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Hamilton, how goes your day? Well, sit in front of the computer and it's actually, it's nice outside. I want to be outside. It's weird, weird, like five degrees again. It's really good, really weird for, for Prince George's time of year. End uh, of January, backside of winter, it's uh, um, springtime, sheep, uh, start sheep training, getting out in the hills, getting some exercise. Yeah, not till probably May here because, well, <laughs> the amount of snow we have on the ground, that uh, makes it a little difficult and it's not fun, but yeah, definitely on the treadmill and got to put down the, the bags of chips, right? That's, <laughs> that's what happens. Yeah. So a couple of housekeeping things. Um, just a reminder, our wild sheep raffles are still for sale. They're, we're going to run them until March 12th, but they are selling out. So I think I checked this morning, we're at 86% on our uh, Barney sheep camp and mm-hmm. uh, we've had a good push on our desert sheep hunt there's uh, we were down to the last uh, couple hundred tickets on that so yeah. if you're going to get some uh, tickets on our wild sheep raffles you need to do it now um, we almost always sell out and I think we'll probably be pretty darn close again this year so. oh I, I don't see a problem with the the Barneys or the the sheep camp or, or the uh, the sheep raffle selling out uh, yeah throw in there we've got a grizzly bear hunt as well and you can't get one of those in BC so that's a great one. Uh, we've got the Aldide hunt in Texas and the uh, antelope hunt in Alberta. Those are some, some pretty awesome uh, raffles to go for. So grab your tickets. Yeah, that Aldide hunt is pretty sweet. It's with Roddy McBride, one mm-hmm. of the premier outfitters in the business. Um, Daryl Hosker's chipped in. He's he's going to help pay for some flights. And um, CITES is going to be done on this thing. So all you need to do is get down there. Everything's going to be taken for – actually, you don't even have to get down there. We're going to fly you down. This is all-inclusive. We fly you down to Texas, um, out of BC. Uh, you do your hunt. You um, fly home. Uh, it's all covered by us, food, everything. Uh, I think – you might have to, you got to buy a license, but again, that's, we, we give you money to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the CITES is covered. So there, the uh, tax the hard work is Dakota, done. Yeah, D- Dakota taxidermy is going to complete the tax, the CITES work and ship it back to your place of residence. So yeah, it doesn't get any sweeter than that. Yeah. Like the only thing you'd have to cover is the tip and yeah, that's, uh, that, that's something that's going to be pretty easy and well worth uh, saving up a, a little bit of money for, for, uh, that experience. So yeah, that's, that's, I want to win that hunt. So, <laughs> yeah. And then there's a premier pronghorn hunt with uh, silver sage outfitters out of uh, Brooks. Um, they kill world-class uh, antelope. And of course you're not going to get one of those in BC. So yeah, nope. this is a great opportunity. Uh, but the best part about it is last year, 
uh, what was the number for projects on the ground? Three hundred and eighteen dollars. Three eighteen. So um, it's these raffles that fund that. So it's a good cause. Um, okay, February first, we got our first webinar series coming up. Um, this is got trial run for us, um, but we've had lots of engagement, lots of people. This mm-hmm. is a great webinar. We've got Chris Proctor. He's a regional biologist. Uh, he is the lead on our Fraser River Bighorn project. This is a flagship project for the society. We're in year four of nine years. We've got another five years, five slash six years ahead of us on this project. Um, some really good progress being made. Chris is going to give us an update on that. Um, so go to our website. You can get registered for it. It's all over social media. That's probably the best place you can get registered for the webinar. I'll put a link as well on this site um, or on this podcast for it. Um, and yeah, come and listen. It's going to be a great, um, it's free. It's free. And you get to take part and ask questions about uh, the Fraser river project and, uh, how, how the herds are reacting or, or whatever you want to know about it. It's, it's going to be, uh, uh, intimate and interactive. We'll call it, uh, yeah, good time. Good time. I want, I want to touch on something. Number four, number four, that was us. Number four, talk is sheep. Number four in uh, North America for podcasts. Remember? Oh yeah, so yeah. I'm, you're looking I confused. I well, welcome to my world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so thank you to our listeners. That's I, huge. It's very cool. Yeah, like the uh, we we were only behind uh, Meat Eater and uh, one of the other big ones, but that that was <laughs> that was mind blowing. Like that that was like holy crap. So that and that's all because of listeners engaging and hitting that follow button, subscribe button, and just taking part and uh, letting us know that uh, they like what they're hearing. And and keep, keep the ideas coming. Like this show is for you. You, We didn't really start with a vision. We just knew we wanted to communicate some of the work we're doing, talk about the projects we're involved in and conservation stuff and, and add some value there. And and thanks to you. Yeah, we've, we've grown. Uh, We're trying to do a better job. We've got lots to learn. Um, You know, we're, we're no Rogan. I'll give you that, but uh, we're super passionate and we're, we listen to you guys. So you tell us what you want to hear and we're bringing them to you. Um, and we got some really cool guests coming up. We're really excited. we got 60 coming up. We're trying to get somebody special for that one. Um, and yeah, thank you to everyone for, for just following along. We love, love hearing from you. So, so this is episode 59 and uh, we're joined by Siobhan Darlington. She's currently doing a uh, project uh, around uh Cougars in the uh, in Southern BC. It's through UBC Okanagan. Uh, fantastic project Siobhan's done. Um, she's done some other papers, some really fascinating work, and she's kind of an up and comer in the uh, science community in BC. And just an honor to have her on the show. Um, she's doing her uh, PhD work around this cougar study, and we talked to her a little bit about her work um, in Northern Alberta, Northern BC around. It was mainly centric around whitetail, but she touches mm-hmm. on the caribou work there. So there's some predator prey uh, concerns around that. We touch on that, and then we talk about her her cougar project. A little bit of bighorn stuff, but really it's more general about cougars and uh, just a really good listen with Siobhan. Yeah, I, I think we should do a giveaway again. We should announce the giveaway from the Laura Zara episode. We, so we had Nathan, Nathan was the winner on that one. I yeah, think, right? that's right. Nathan emailed and said that... Uh, she has a Malinois, or as I call it, a Maligator. That's 100% correct. So, Nathan, uh, hopefully you're listening. Fire us another email at communications at wildsheepsociety.com with your uh, mailing address, and we'll get something cool shipped out to you. 
Absolutely. So congrats on that, Nathan. So we're going to get do a giveaway here and uh, you're going to have to listen to the whole podcast. We're not making it easy for you, um, but you need to tell us what did you come up with, Steve? What does Siobhan say her favorite name for a cougar is? Yeah, that's a good one. So um, do you have a favorite name? Do you, do you, uh, there's 50 names for them. So do you have oh, a favorite? At least I, I, I've always been partial just calling them cougars. Cougars, mountain lions, things like that. I've, I've never really jumped outside that that box there. I've I've never really called them puma or anything else. But yeah, like you said, there's there's a, a ton of names that uh, they're called. I call them delicious. Right, I've had them at game banquets, and uh, they're they're uh, once you get over that mental block of of what it is and try it, it's wow. I've had a bunch of people, uh, first timers at game banquets, and said, no, no, give it a try you'll you'll really like it and they they're always converted and they go holy crap that's not what yeah. i thought it was i'll share your sentiment yeah white meat and it's really mm. yeah, i like it we we've we served at jurassic a few times and uh yeah fascinating i i, I really enjoy it actually so yeah um yeah anyway episode 59 with um siobhan darlington enjoy and thanks everyone for tuning in If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, BC. Good morning, Siobhan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kyle, for having me on today. I appreciate it. So you're zooming in or squatting in from the interior, I understand, of British Columbia? Yes, I'm based in Kelowna. I'm based at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Okay, very cool. So where are you at um, in your... Uh, you're working on your master's, your PhD. I think it's your PhD now that you're working on. Is that correct, Siobhan? Or? Yes. So I'm just over two years into my PhD research at UBCO. Um, so I started in January 2020. Very cool. So now let's just back up the bus and kind of let's talk about a young Siobhan, where you came from, how you ended up. I, I know you're not from BC. Um, and and I'm really curious to hear about a typical day in the life of Siobhan because uh, chasing cougars <laughs> around the bush sounds pretty exciting, but I'm, I'm guessing you're not doing that 12 hours a day, seven days a week. But anyway, let's go back to um, your early days uh, where you grew up and, and kind of your interest, I guess, in wildlife, really. Sure. Yeah. So I don't know if you can tell, but I'm from Nova Scotia. <laughs> I think I have a bit of a mesh between a Nova Scotia and a British Columbia accent at this point in my life. Um, but yeah, I'm from Halifax. So I grew up there and I went to uh, university at Dalhousie for my undergraduate degree in biology. So I had an interest in the environment from a young age. I had a teacher, Madame Shelley, when I was a kid who taught us all about recycling and composting and caring about the environment. And that really struck a chord with me when I was 11. And I didn't always know I wanted to work with wildlife, but I really had a passion for my pet cat. And uh, I loved going to zoos and other things to do with animals. So I think it kind of naturally came for me at the point in university that I wanted to study wildlife conservation. so at the beginning, it was more an interest in the environment and then building towards, I really care about animals and how we can protect their environment. 
Um, so not just our environment, but the environment we share with wildlife. Um, so, so I did my undergraduate undergraduate degree there and uh, yeah, decided to pursue my career from that point. <laughs> what was your undergraduate in? Sorry, I missed that at the start. Uh, I was in biology and environmental sustainability. So it was kind of funny. I thought I was going to be this hippie riding a bicycle, studying government policy and sustainability and be all artsy. And I discovered in my undergrad that I really enjoy the sciences and natural sciences a lot more. Um, so I started steering more towards conservation as opposed to the more government side of things. And now I'm coming full circle a little bit more around policy later in my career. <laughs> Very cool. So you did your undergraduate grad there. And then where where did you go after there in terms of schooling? You did your master's in out west here? Or? Yeah. So uh, after my undergraduate degree, uh, it's tough to find a job in the environment in Nova Scotia. So I worked just after my undergraduate degree, an internship with the Nature Conservancy of Canada in New Brunswick. So I moved there as their conservation volunteers coordinator and just did an internship coordinating events across the maritime provinces and getting locals to engage with the environment and uh, protect it by planting trees and building trails on protected lands, surveying for birds and insects and that sort of thing. Um, but I learned in that position that I really wanted to do more field work. So I enjoyed working with local communities, but it was a minor aspect of my job was getting outside. Uh, most of it was desk, uh, desk work. So I learned that I really wanted to do more science and pursued my master's at the University of Victoria. So I ended up moving across the country to the other coast. And I picked Victoria because it's most similar to Halifax and that was a big move to do by myself. Um, so I was brave and I packed up all my things on my own and went to UVic and uh, haven't looked back since. I've been in BC uh, and a bit in Alberta ever since 2015. And I pursued my work with Dr. Jason Fisher and John Volpe studying white-tailed deer in northeastern Alberta. So I was lucky I got to work in Victoria, but my research was in northern Alberta and I didn't have to live there. <laughs> <laughs> so can we just touch a little bit on that? So there, your white-tailed deer study, was a lot of it classroom oriented or like working from the home office or was there lots on the ground doing collar work and that sort of stuff and being out there on the ground involved with that? What did that look like for you? Uh, so good question. So I came on after the collaring had already been done. So the collaring occurred in 2012 through 2014. So 38 deer were, uh, does were fitted with GPS collars. And I came on in 2016, starting on that project at UVic. Um, so I was mainly doing the analysis with the collar data. However, we did also have a camera grid with 62 remote cameras deployed on the landscape. And I was able to go out to Christina Lake and Conklin and service the trail cameras. So I did get to see the study area and I did see deer and I even saw caribou when I was there. So part of my research was investigating not only deer movement and habitat use in the Conklin area where there's a lot of heavy industrial disturbance, but the implications of having deer on that landscape for woodland caribou that are in decline. Cool. So I got a ton of questions around that, but I, I'm kind of, we're kind of doing the chronology of, of Siobhan. So I'm going to continue <laughs> on with that, but we'll come back and, and touch on that stuff. So, okay. So that, uh, so that now you really recently re released your uh, first person paper, I think was that how you called it first First, first, first authored. First authored. Okay, right. So that means, and I'm not a scientist, so, but that's, your name's the first one. So you're kind of the lead. Is that 
quite correct understanding on that. Yeah, so it's a collaboration, but it was um, primarily me who did the analyses and writing and all of that, but with help from all of the other authors as well. Cool. So now was that paper relating to the whitetail study or was that um, a, an independent study? So this is related to my master's research, yes. So okay. um, it took a few years to get the uh, analyses just the way we wanted. I had already finished my thesis in 2018. And you know how life gets. You get busy doing other research projects and things get on the back burner. But I'm glad that that paper's finally out. Um, but yeah, so that was part of my research at UVic. Well, congratulations on getting that first paper out. And yeah, that's really exciting. And, and we'll touch on that more in a, in a few minutes here. So so you complete, completed your master's in 18 and then talk us through the PhD and what's going on with that and how that's worked. Sure. So I finished my master's in 2018. I did actually do a stint in Alberta before starting my PhD. So I worked for uh, FRI Research based in Hinton, uh, working on white-tailed deer there and caribou, also doing a bit of modeling for grizzly bear and caribou around mountain pine beetle and natural causes of landscape disturbance. Uh, so they have massive problems in uh, the Jasper Hinton area with mountain pine beetle. And there's really not a lot of research that's been done on how caribou and grizzly bear, both species at risk in Alberta, respond to maths swaths of mountain pine beetle taking out forest cover and changing lichen composition and that sort of thing. So I worked there uh, doing some modeling for that and catching deer. So I did get to collar and trap white-tailed deer finally <laughs> doing that project. And my interest in cougars really came, I had a bit of an interest in cougars before that because I studied the predators of deer in Northeastern Alberta, but we didn't have cougars coming in to our uh, cameras or anything like that really um, in Lac La Biche. But when I was in Hinton, we had cougars on our cameras coming into our deer traps. So I was checking the cameras we put up on the clover traps and we had cougars coming in and like their tracks in the snow were all inside the traps and they weren't getting stuck in there. We had them locked open during this cold spell, but there were photos of cougar kittens playing on top of the trap. And I thought, whoa, that's crazy. And the best part was when I checked the pictures, this all happened um, seconds before I walked up. So I walked up to check the camera and flip through the photos and less than a minute before I showed up, the cougars were there. So I thought, oh my gosh, I almost saw a cougar. That's crazy. I've never seen one before. And I can't believe they're probably close to me watching me right now. Um, so I really wanted to pursue something on cougars and deer. And that's what led me to uh, applying for this PhD that I'm doing now in British Columbia is that appeal was there already for me um, between the two species. Cool. So talk us through that. So uh, my understanding, UBC Okanagan, um, I, I seen Dr. Adam Ford. I think you're part of uh, working under him and maybe another doctor as well. So tell us about that evolution and how you got involved. Obviously, the, we know the interest part of it, but how did you come to be in the Okanagan? Yeah, so Karen, Dr. Karen Hodges and Dr. Adam Ford were approached by TJ Goliath um, at the Flynn Rowe and Penticton, uh, you know, the Ministry of Forests, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ministry and, of uh, Alphabet Soup. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so he had an idea to do some cougar work in the Okanagan. He did his master's on lynx uh, and bobcat with Dr. Karen Hodges. So there was an mm -hmm. interest in big cats for him. 
and thought, hey, I think there's a knowledge gap here with cougars. We had this mule deer study already underway. Why don't we build on it by doing something with cougars? So they came together and advertised to hire a student. And I saw that advertisement and applied uh, right away. <laughs> I was very excited about that. Uh, especially the opportunity to work hands-on collaring cougars and being involved with every aspect of the study. So it hadn't started yet. There was like, no funding, nothing in place, just an idea really. And by the time I came on, they had purchased the collars and uh, the project was starting to develop in terms of our objectives. And I really had the opportunity to help out getting uh, grant funding, starting from scratch and, uh, yeah, going through all the stages of putting together this huge collaboration. Yeah, TJ's great. Uh, we helped him out. I'm in Prince George, and uh, with his Lynx Bobcat, there was a, a, a trail camera picture that was up for debate. People said, oh, it's a Bobcat in Prince George, and yeah, we're pretty closely with him. Uh, yeah, good guy. <laughs> Very cool, Siobhan. So let's let's harken back i guess to your um your master's work and your project there and the paper that you recently released and uh maybe just give us an overview of what that paper was about it's very interesting i think it's very i know it's an alberta study and it's around deer a lot of our listeners are, are sheep centric but uh you know i think probably aspects of that paper relate to you know disturbances in northern british columbia and how they've affected the caribou and um and possibly some sheep as well. So, and predator management and, and predator involvement and that sort of thing. So yeah, if you don't mind talking about that, I'd love to hear, I've read your paper and really enjoyed it actually. Um, but uh, there's a lot I didn't understand as well. So I'd love to hear it from your, <laughs> your mouth, I guess. So. Sure. Yeah. So for this paper, we were really interested in understanding what the drivers are of white-tailed deer habitat use in Northern Alberta. So to back up a bit, white-tailed deer have been expanding the limits of their northern range for 50-60 years in Canada, moving further north in Alberta through northern British Columbia into the southern Yukon. And there was a study in 2014 and 2016 um, out of the University of Alberta looking at whether land use change from development or climate change were kind of the causal factors of deer moving north. Um, so that was a really interesting study that looked at this and they found the climate change was the main driver. Um, but what they didn't do in that study was really analyze land use more in more detail. So all the different types of disturbances like legacy seismic lines that are cause cause huge amounts of deforestation and create this grid and sight lines for predators. And we know from other studies, too, that predators like wolves are using those features to navigate faster and farther through the landscape to target their prey. Um, so if a wolf can see really far away down a seismic line that's totally clear, um, what chance do prey have in that environment? Uh, it's very difficult for them to find anywhere to evade predators. So that study didn't look in too much of the weeds of uh, the different types of disturbances. So we really wanted to look at that side of things because it's interesting that deer occur really intensively in big numbers in these areas that are heavily developed by industry, um, but their population numbers aren't consistent if it's just climate driven across the country. So we're not seeing in neighboring Saskatchewan where there's less development on the other side of the border at the same latitude as many deer. So there has to be a combination of factors that's creating the suitable environment for deer to thrive in the winter. So why are they 
you know, successful in the winter. They must have a lot of access to food. Um, their population's been able to grow and occupy that landscape uh, year after year, even after a severe winter. So we wanted to look at things like deforestation from clear cuts and seismic lines, roads, and all of these factors to see, well, what, what, which ones are important for deer and which ones aren't. Um, is there anything deterring deer from living here? Or are we just making this a deer's paradise? <laughs> you know, making really good food, forage, uh, access for deer. And, you know, there's not enough hunters in the area that can limit this population. Uh, it's very difficult, as you probably know, to control deer numbers when they get out of hand. <laughs> now, I, just out of curiosity, is is there a scenario where white-tailed deer will start competing with caribou in, um, in northern in northern climates? That that that's a factor. Is that something that is, was on the radar? Obviously, that wasn't the focus of your study, but is something that you came across in the work that you were doing? Yeah, so what we call that, we um, refer to this as a parent competition, is when the number of one prey indirectly affects another prey species negatively through a shared predator. So if the deer populations in northeastern Alberta are climbing and they're this basically, uh, you know, buffet of deer on the landscape for wolves and bears, um, that means that they can support higher predator numbers. So this is how they negatively impact caribou. So there are a couple of caribou ranges that overlap our study, the Cold Lake caribou and Athabasca East caribou herds. Um, so we saw on our trail cameras in our study, very few detections for caribou. Um, they're heavily in decline. They do fairly well in the Cold Lake uh, range because there's a military base where they're essentially protected from development. And we see that in other military bases elsewhere in the country where, um, there's more mature stands, better food, that sort of thing, more protected from predators or in industrial disturbance. Um, but anywhere outside of that range, caribou are in this landscape covered by disturbance and huge sight lines and predators. We saw lots of wolf tracks, coyote tracks when we were up there. Um, I did see caribou when I was putting out the cameras as well. So I was really lucky. I saw them my first day at the very first camera I went to service, which was right by the Cold Lake Range, just on the border. And I uh, drove down this road with a huge transmission line along the side. Um, so I got these epic photos of caribou standing in the middle of the road. And it's just all disturbance around them. Um, so that was really, it hit home for me that what we're doing to these landscapes impacts wildlife. And here we are with these dwindling caribou that we almost never see. And they're standing here in this really risky spot in the middle of a road where any predator could easily see them. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, I didn't study di direct predation of caribou from wolves or anything like that in the study. It was focused on deer, but the implications for caribou are there. If we have a habitat that sustains deer, that's bad news for caribou. Um, but I do know that they did have, so after our study, there were wolf calls that occurred in the area. Uh, and there's another student at UVic who is completing her master's, Katie Bailey David, um, on the pre and post wolf call um, distribution of some of these animals with the camera data. So you'll have to wait for her paper to come out <laughs> to see what the impact of wolf reductions might've had um, on caribou and deer as well. Um, but it, during my study, there were still pretty high wolf numbers as far as we know. 
Very cool. So now with your paper and your study um, and, and your master's as well, what what impact will that provide to, you know, regional biologists in the ministry uh, in Alberta or, you know, I guess in BC if they use that data? What will that allow them? You know, what kind of things could they use that for? Would it go around land use planning, things like that? Or, or would it be about the wildlife management? Just curious what what the primary drivers would be for that paper. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a couple things we can take away from this work. So one is that deer are in eastern the eastern part of the range and where we are in, in the, you know, this study near Lac La Biche and Conklin is that deer use roadside verges. They use areas that are clear cut and have regenerating plant growth. So anywhere where you're cutting forests and providing new food for deer, um, you're helping those deer stay in the area and use the landscape and that's benefiting them. So a lot of focus for caribou conservation has been to slow down predators, so direct removal of predators, and also restoring seismic lines and making seismic lines difficult for wolves to travel down. Uh, so that's been a focus of conservation, but we haven't really been looking at it in the lens of prey that sustain wolves too. Um, so thinking about what features support deer, it's not just about seismic lines for wolves, what about all the other features that benefit deer and they're a detriment to caribou. So clear cuts that don't provide the lichens that caribou eat. Um, so that's not good habitat for caribou, but it is good habitat for deer. So thinking about um, how cup locks are managed, how roadside verges are managed, roads that are deactivated, no longer used, they take a long time to regenerate too. Um, so thinking about road management and land use planning that way, and just trying to reverse some of the negative effects of, you know, building roads constantly in this landscape. And if you see it from a bird's eye view, it's really something to see is how many seismic lines and roads and cup blocks there are in the boreal forest up there. And it's no surprise that that's a huge factor in uh, affecting these wildlife interactions uh, between predator and prey. Um, so really thinking about how we can restore this habitat, not just for caribou, but limiting it for deer because deer didn't used to be there. Um, so we can look to the future in other caribou range further and further north as deer continue to move forward, uh, you know, at the northern extent of their range. How can we get ahead of this um, so that it's not a huge problem, hopefully in the future for other caribou herds? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I guess in southern BC, and I guess central in some capacity, they're they're competing. Mule deer are com competing as well, right? Because whitetail just seem to be such a resilient species, and they just are able to, um, you know, grow and grow and grow and, and increase their range. So, are, are we seeing de decreasing? And I think mule deer numbers in British Columbia are, are down, from my understanding. Is that at the hands of white whitetails, or not? Was that part of your study at all as well? Um, so it wasn't part of my study for my master's, but it is something that I'm looking at in my PhD because we are looking at mule deer populations in decline in the southern interior and white-tailed deer are a factor in part of that range. So we do see some white-tails where we are here in the Okanagan. Uh, there are fewer white-tails um, than mule deer. We don't know how many exactly of each, but it's evident that they're, they're not as established here as uh, in the Kootenays, for example. So when we are looking at my PhD research in cougar predation, we can see what prey are available to cougars. And it's very clear that white-tailed deer are far outnumber mule deer in the Kootenays as cougar prey. Um, but in our, in our other study areas, as you move further west, you know, we get 
equal numbers approximately in the boundary uh, between Rock Creek and Grand Forks. And then in the Okanagan, mule deer far outnumber whitetails as the prey source uh, for cougars. So we can see how uh, we have fewer mule deer in the Kootenays, and that might be because whitetail are established there now um, and may, might be out competing them there. So I'm not an expert on mule deer. You'll have to ask Chloe Wright, a PhD okay. student studying mule deer. She knows this a lot better than I do. Uh, but I think that's certainly a factor. Cool. And and forgive me for going off on these shoots. I know they're, you know, you're, there's your core that, and and again, I read the paper, so I should know better, but these are always intriguing questions. So um, let's so go back to your study and the core of that. You talked about uh, industry disturbances and, and seismic lines and cut blocks. How about climate change? How much uh, of a factor? I know that's some one of the components you looked at. Can you talk a little bit about climate change and how that affected uh, whitetail populations as well? Yeah, so we know from other studies that deer populations are limited by severe winters. So if they can't access food, there's too much snow. Snow depth is hard to it's hard to move through deep snow if you're a deer at uh, the northern limits or deep, uh, uh, you know, deep snow depths and stuff like that. So um, climate change is certainly a factor in terms of more mild winters occurring in the north. So as fewer and fewer severe winters occur, the landscape is more suitable for deer. Um, we didn't look at climate change uh, specifically in this study. We were focused more on land use change and the human side of things that's more directly impacting the landscape rather than indirect human effects. Um, however, we did look at seasonal effects in white-tailed deer and we found that their um, habitat use didn't change a lot between the seasons. There were some differences and a few different features here and there, but overall deer were still using a lot of human land use features in winter as much as in summer. Um, so we know that even though there might be milder winter, a lot of these other land use features are playing a role year round. Um, so in the fall, you, they're able to use cup blocks. In the winter, they can still benefit from cup blocks in some areas. Um, so there's still that forage is still there for them to access and we're just opening that landscape up for them. Uh, so we're not seeing a huge drop off in deer numbers in the winter. So that's part of it as well. So you would expect that if there's really hard winters, deer numbers would decline and then potentially rebound. But with fewer severe winters, we're not seeing that drop off of deer um, as much anymore. So that's where climate change can be an impact here is that um, it's not limiting the population as much as it used to. Okay, so Siobhan, earlier you referenced uh, pine beetle, and I think this maybe is part of the climate change piece in the sense that winters aren't as severe, so the pine beetle aren't as affected. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit how pine beetle and, and what impact that has had on, on your study in the whitetails as well? Yeah, so I didn't look at mountain pine beetle in the Lac Bish area. This is when they work at FRI around caribou. Uh, and grizzly bears. But what we did find there is that um, the mountain pine beetle outbreaks in Western Alberta are really out of control because if there's fewer severe winters, the pine beetle can still proliferate and very quickly. Um, so in, if you go to Jasper in the last few years, the whole park is covered in mountain pine beetle infestation. It's everywhere. And we're seeing caribou in decline, um, very much so in that area. So Moline Lake caribou herd is uh, extirpated. The Tonquin, I think, is the only one that might be still viable there. Um, some of the other herds are dwindling and then outside of the park as well. Um, Narraway herd and... Um, 
Little Smoky are hugely impacted by uh, land use disturbance from industrial activity. Um, so by removing forest cover from mountain pine beetle infestation on top of all the deforestation happening um, in their range, we're really seeing a huge reduction in canopy cover. So once the needles fall on these trees mm -hmm. from mountain pine beetle, there goes this canopy that you need for the lichens that they rely on. Um, so you need some mature forests for caribou, and these mature forests are getting wiped out by pine beetle infestations. Oh, so yeah. it seems caribou are getting hit left, right, and center mm -hmm. <laughs> with all these different disturbance types, natural uh, and human-caused as well. Yeah, I know driving east into, into Jasper from Prince George, it's just as soon as you start to crest over the hill, it's nothing but seas of red. And it's it's brutal. When I first moved up to PG about 15 years ago, it used to be the same. And they've done some selective logging up here and kind of mitigated that problem. But as you say, the, the canopy's gone. They're, they can't mm -hmm. plant fast enough. The trees and the cover doesn't, they, they don't grow fast enough. So yeah, I totally get where you're coming from on the, the beetle over there. It's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. So let's segue. There's tons to talk about there, but let's let's segue to your current work and your PhD study. So you're currently involved in the Southern BC Cougar Project. And uh I know you had a goal of of 50 callers, I believe it was. So can you just give us an overview on what you're studying, the program itself? Um, and then I've got a million questions for you about all kinds of stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Um, so the Southern BC Cougar Project is a collaborative project with the uh, University of British Columbia Okanagan, Flinro, um, the Okanagan Nation Alliance. There are many different partner organizations supporting this work. So I just want to acknowledge everybody that's been a part of that project. Um, we really couldn't do all of this without so many volunteers and supportive groups and local game club chapters and such. So um yeah, just getting that out there. Thank you to everybody. Um, so the objectives of that project are to build off of Chloe Wright's PhD research, analyzing mule deer um, proximate mortality across the southern interior and the causes of decline. So what she was observing in her study so far is that uh, the proximate cause of mule deer mortality is cougar predation. So our study is building off of that to analyze where cougars are killing their prey. How many cougars are there even? Because we don't know <laughs> how many cougars there are in the interior and whether density might be an issue or not. Uh, looking at their movement in the landscape and how they use disturbance types. So Chloe is looking at mule deer response to wildfire. And we know that in BC, we're getting increasingly intensive fires and we just had a really big fire season just this last year. Um, so what we wanna know is whether fire is not just a good thing for deer or not, is it important for cougars? So can cougars use disturbed landscapes from wildfires or clear cutting to hunt their prey more effectively or is it drawing them to certain features because they might be producing food for ungulates so we want to understand kind of the multiple levels <laughs> of um, how disturbance types on the landscape affect predators and their prey um, so we're looking at cougars where they're occurring we've collared 36 individuals so far and our target is 40 so we're almost there <laughs> we're hoping to get our last four callers out this winter and then we're hoping to continue to replace some callers and maintain our uh, sample size over the next few years cool and the duration of this project like if you get the 40 on and then when is how long does it continue to and when will your paper come out on on this potentially 
Yeah, so isn't that the question every PhD <laughs> loves to be asked? Every PhD student, when are you going to be done? Um, so we're two years in now. We're hoping that we'll finish the collaring this year and it'll really just be some maintenance. Uh, whether the project continues beyond two more years from now will be up to uh, my advisors probably and our funders, whether they want to continue supporting the project and potentially have another student come on board. Um, as much as I love cougars, I probably couldn't stay forever as much as I want to <laughs> study sure. cougars all the time. But I am hoping to begin my analysis. So we've done a lot of field work so far on the study. We call it the 36 animals. And we've also been visiting cougar kill sites. So we've had technicians for three seasons now uh, collecting data on what cougars are eating uh, throughout the winter, spring, summer and fall. And we also have volunteers helping with that as well, and the Okanagan Nation Alliance technicians. So we're hoping that we can continue the kill site investigations at least through the end of the summer coming up, and then uh, use that data in my analysis in the next year. And then after that, I'll start writing. So <laughs> probably a couple of years for my paper, but uh, we're definitely getting close. We have the bulk of our data collected now. Um, which is exciting. And we've done, I think, about 900 cluster sites, which is the grouping of GPS locations where we think a kill could be uh, for a cougar. They're not always a kill, um, but we've done 900 of those sites and about 62% of those we find uh, a carcass that a cougar was feeding on. Very cool. So let's Let's just maybe um, just talk cougars in general, and then we'll jump into the specifics of the study. But let's just talk about historic range for some of our listeners. I think, you know, I, I actually, I, I'm sure you're familiar with this book, Path of the Puma, Puma uh, by Jim Williams. Are you familiar with that, his work at all? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I actually met Jim a couple of months ago and he signed my copy of Fat oh, cool. Puma. So thank you, Jim. Shout out to you. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is a great book. I was actually on a Northern BC wolf hunt uh, last year and I was reading this book and I just, uh, it was fascinating. I couldn't put it down uh, when I was sitting in a ground blind. But uh, anyway, some really interesting work there. And he talks about his, the historic range. And I know you've um, you've done a good job of articulating that too. So the, run for our listeners, the historic range and kind of what's happened to uh, cougar numbers over the years and then kind of where we're at today, I guess, if you don't mind, Siobhan, please. Yeah, sure. So um, some of you may or may not know the cougars used to occur all across North America. So they're limited today to the Western side of North America. They run from the Southern Yukon in pretty low numbers, uh, but they occur from the Southern Yukon all the way down to Patagonia. So they're the widest ranging uh, terrestrial mammal, I believe in the Americas because they occur in so many different countries. They have over 50 different names because they occur in so many different places. Um, but they only occurred in North America from, you know, Vancouver Island, approximately further west, over to the Dakotas. Um, so there have been some small remnant populations in the Dakota Badlands um, of cougars breeding there. And in the last 10 years, also in southeast, southwestern Saskatchewan, um, where in the Cypress Hills, they discovered a population of breeding cougars. Um, but that was only in the last 10 years that that population was discovered. So they have been observed moving further east. There's also a remnant population of Florida panther. So they're isolated and genetically distinct from the other cougars in the rest of North America because they've been separated for so many years. Um, but they're also, um, they're further east, but they're the only population that exists on that eastern side of North America. 
So there are sometimes dispersing cougars that move from these areas like the Badlands or Alberta um, into places like Manitoba and potentially even Northern Ontario, but there's not sustained populations in those places just yet. Um, but they did occur even in Nova Scotia, uh, you know, 150 years ago or so. We had cougars there. We also had caribou. So it's really hard to imagine where I'm from that there used to be cougars and there were even caribou in Cape Breton, um, you know, historically speaking, not that long ago. But what happened to cougars, uh, among other predators, are that they were heavily persecuted um, in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And it was only really until the 1960s that cougar management became a thing. So in the U.S., certain states started implementing management plans to keep some cougars around. And this shows really how resilient cougars were because there were bounties on cougars. You know, 100 years ago, you could make a lot of money hunting cougars uh, to get rid of them. So it was really only in the 1960s and 70s that states and provinces started to put regulations in place for cougar hunting and keeping them around. Um, so we've seen them, you know, start to recolonize the areas where they were essentially removed um, 100 years ago. So that's been really cool to observe and read about. And uh, what I'm also interested in seeing is whether or not cougars might also be moving further north, similar to white-tailed deer. So we don't know a lot about how they might be shifting with climate change. There's a lot of unanswered questions around cougar distribution moving forward. Cool. So now if we're just to uh, dumb it down, what what are historic cougar numbers? If you, you know, they're, they're all-time high and then current number estimates for, you know, worldwide, I guess, effectively, or, or North America, if you will. I think today, and you can't perfectly quote me on this because the estimates for cougar are so variable between provinces and countries, and mm -hmm. it's really difficult to survey cougars, one, because they're so elusive. <laughs> they're really difficult to, you know, detect on cameras even to determine how many there are, and not many places have current density estimates. Um, however, I think there's the ICUN of something like 50,000 cougars across their range, and Canada has just under a quarter of the global population, uh, most of which are in British Columbia. There's a lower percentage in Alberta because the range is mainly in the Rockies and the foothills of Alberta and not so much on the eastern side. So I think in British Columbia, estimates are very variable between, you know, maybe 4,000 cougars or something like that, 5,000 cougars. But what the answer is, we really don't know how many cougars right. there are. Um, and especially further north, there are some other cougar projects starting up with the government and the Chilcotin looking at cougar numbers. There's some interest and momentum looking at cougars in other places in British Columbia right now, which is exciting. Um, you know, I think our project has really gotten other people to think about their role and how many there are and, hey, maybe we should be paying attention to these animals. Um, but we're learning that there are places in Northern BC where they've never done a cougar survey before. And there's very limited data on hunter harvest in some areas as well. The hunter harvest data is very useful for us in terms of seeing how far they've been documented from conflict or harvest. Um, but in terms of wild cougars that never see people and the evade hunting, uh, we don't have any data, data on that in many places. Right. So um, just so roughly 50,000. And what was the historic high like estimated? Do you have any number just out of curiosity? Was it it would have been obviously significantly higher, I would imagine. Right? 
Yeah, it would be. I don't know exactly how much it is. So yeah. I can't really say. Um, back cool. in the day, they also didn't have nearly the technology that we do today to estimate accurately. So even if there is an estimate, it probably isn't really very close <laughs> to what there really were on the landscape um, back in the 1800s or so. Um, right. But you can imagine more than half of the U.S. and Canada being wiped out, how many that would be potentially. Um, but with, yeah, with human development, too, I mean, pushing cougars further and further away and uh, more conflict, get, removing cougars coming into where people are has been a huge factor as well. Okay, cool. All right. So now back to your study. So with your work, um, talk us through a normal day. And I know there's probably nothing normal about it because it's, it's, and, and also the, I, I'm very aware that the projects, you know, getting towards the end of the, uh, like on the ground work and you're, you're getting your last callers out. So it's evolving now, but what's a typical day for Siobhan Darlington? What does that look like for you and, and what you're doing? <laughs> um, well, the exciting part about my work is that, Day to day, it's really different. So I have many days where I'm working on the computer, organizing people and the data and looking at where we need to collect more cougar data and looking at maps of cougars. Every day I check where the locations are for each cougar and I look at how many sites we've done for each one. So it involves a lot of mapping and looking at data um, throughout the day. But uh, you never know when you can you can get a call on this project. So sometimes I get a phone call, it's five o'clock and I'm about to sit down to dinner and the conservation officers might have a cougar that I could call her and translocate. So, hey, I gotta go grab my truck and all this equipment and head out and it's getting late and now move a cougar before it gets dark. So that sort of thing. Um, sometimes we have a mortality signal come in. Uh, we had two cougars die on the project in the last week. And one was in the Kootenai study area and one was in our boundary study area. So one was from snaring and the other one was from uh, predation by another cougar. So I get these mortality alerts on my phone and I have to figure out whether or not it's true because sometimes the cougars fall asleep. Same thing happens with deer or other collared animals. They go to bed and the collar is not moving for a certain number of hours and it tricks you into thinking it's a mortality signal. Right. Um, so usually I wait and see, I make sure that it, it's not moving before we drive three hours to go check it out. Um, but, uh, you know, organizing all of that too. So you never know day to day what could happen or if another hounds person or hunter might be seeing a collar cougar and we need to go replace the battery for that cougar. So now we're rushing to go meet a hunter in the backcountry, you know, on no notice. So I always joke with people who want to come out with them. Um, can you still hear me? You bet. Oh, I just logged out for some reason. My computer signed me out. Sorry, one sec. No worries. I can't believe I'm still on. Yeah, my computer yeah. just went completely black for some. Oh, it went to sleep. That's yeah. happened before. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like, We've oh, had wait. some of them run out of battery too, so we oh, okay. we got to wait for a, a charging cable. So. Oh, no, I, yeah, I did good. plug mine in. Okay, yeah, you're good. So what was I? What was I saying? Um, uh, so yeah, your day. Yeah. So um, I do tell people who come out to who want to come out with me to do cougar work that I never know how long the day is going to be because oftentimes the work is we work at you know, all through the day. And then sometimes we're snowmobiling in the pitch black um, back to our trucks. It's uh, the days usually are a lot longer than you think in the winter. 
Uh, we don't have a lot of daylight to work with and our sites are very far away. Cougars live far from towns, you know, healthy in the backcountry. It takes a long time to get there. Um, and it's very physically demanding. So cougars live in mountainous areas in deep snow and there's not always a road to get you very close to the sites. Um, so you need snowshoes and a snowmobile and all this and sometimes the equipment doesn't work for you. And uh, anyway, so I come back usually with a lot of bruises, <laughs> pretty tired, and uh, my days are pretty long. Um, but then the next day, I might just be in the office for the next few days. Um, so it's very variable, but it's exciting. I think that the work keeps me on my toes. <laughs> and most people who want to come out with me, they don't ask to come out again when they uh, experience one day <laughs> of cougar Once field is work. Enough. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So do you try and go on every single mortality, every one? Like, are you on those or or is there some where you just can't make it and you have someone go on your behest? Yeah. So if they're in the study area in the West Okanagan or the boundary, either myself or our hired technicians will go and investigate using the telemetry equipment and track down the caller. Uh, but in the Kootenays, since that study area is a six-hour drive, we have partners over there with uh, Pat Stent, a senior wildlife biologist at that office, and he has some... Um, partner technicians with the um, Nature Trust of British Columbia, they're helping us out. So it won't always be me investigating, um, but people who do go out for us will collect as much data as possible on cougar mortalities. We haven't had too many. I think we've had seven or eight total since we started. Uh, so it's not quite the same as mule deer that die all the time <laughs> on Chloe's study. She has, she'll go out and collar the fawns in the spring um, when they drop and then over half of her fawns have been predated, you know, within a couple weeks. So we don't have quite as many mortality signals as the ungulate people do. <laughs> <laughs> so when the, one of these things I see on Facebook all the time is you see a picture, uh, on somebody's trail camera or of a, of a cougar that's got a collar on it and people always come unglued and say, you're choking it. Uh, it's in pain. So can you talk a little bit about what a collar is, uh, what it's made of and how it's sized and does it fall off or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. So the collars that we use, I mean, they are the most advanced collars that are available, the ones that we're using. Uh, they're made with leather. So the leather belt is there and it has what's called a rod off strip. Um, so the rod off strip is just made of material that degrades over time and the collars are not meant to be on the animals for life and they degrade. And we've checked a few, we've replaced a couple batteries on collars and checked the rod off and it works pretty well. We've even had a few collars fall off uh, cougars so far on the project uh, when we've gone and collected them. So they're not on the cougars for life, but we fit them so that we can fit four fingers or so and slide them underneath. So they can't get a whole paw under the collar. That's really important. So it's the same thing with hoofed animals. You don't want them to get a hoof caught under the collar. So I think a lot of people who are looking at collared animals think that's too tight, not realizing that if you make it too loose, one, it could fall over the top of their head. Two, they could get a paw or a hoof actually caught in a collar that's too loose and then they can't get it out. Um, so it's more dangerous to make a collar too loose, um, which is really, the fit is very important. We're very careful about that. Um, they also have two compartments on carnivore collars. So on ungulate collars, there's one compartment. On cougars, there's two, one for the battery, one for the computer. Um, but the collar itself doesn't weigh very much. 
So it's less than, I think, 3% of the body weight of a cougar. Um, so you, it looks heavier than it is. It weighs virtually nothing. Um, so they design these collars to be as light as possible while being durable enough to withstand, you know, a cougar going around in the backcountry in all weather conditions, taking down a moose, right? So they have to be durable enough that we can still get that data. But one thing I like to emphasize too, is that we can get so much data from a single GPS collar on a cougar. Um, we have learned so much about what they eat. We'd never find the, the food that they eat without the collar data. We also learn about where females den and give birth, how many kittens they have, whether they're male and female, how long the kittens live for. There's an abundance of information that we can learn from one single collar. Um, so it's a small sacrifice to make to learn about this elusive species because the alternative is to have virtually no data on them. Very cool. Yeah. So talk us through. So you obviously it's way too early to analyze, analyze the data, but you, I know you've been watching these things and you have preliminary, uh, you know, things that you're learning. Talk a little bit about, I guess, the importance of, um, you know, coloring an coloring a cat. I, I know kill sites are a big part of this. Um, and then mortality and like, you know, what's really impactful and you kind of touched on it there, but let's go a little bit more into detail on, on the importance of the kill site. And I know, and maybe talk about the process. I know you got the trail cans up, cams up now and stuff. And that work is fascinating to me as well. I was blown away by some of your footage. So over to you on that stuff, Siobhan. Yeah. So what we're learning with the the kill site investigations really comes down to cougar diet. And what's interesting is we don't know a lot about what cougars eat throughout the year. Uh, many cougar studies out there have looked at cougar diet in North America. It's mainly during the winter. There was a study in Alberta that uh, was led by Kyle Knopf, and he looked at cougar diet throughout the year and found, hey, they were eating a lot of deer in the summer, more so than in the winter. And we find that in other studies, um, cougars tend to diversify their diet. So they eat more different animal species in the summer than in the winter when they focus more on deer. So we wanted to know, is British Columbia's southern interior more similar to what this study found in Alberta, or is it more similar to other places like Wyoming and Montana, where they've studied cougars? Um, are cougars eating more different things, or are they eating even more mule deer in the summer than they do in the winter? And we're looking at different aspects of this. So looking at, like I mentioned before, the role of landscape disturbance. So wildfires in the summer, does that mean that cougars are honing in on deer in areas that have been recently burned and producing lots of plants for deer to forage on? Um, we're also looking at the role of scavengers. So that's why we have cameras up on cougar kills. So we're looking at the role of other animals on the landscape, not just cougars, that uh, rely on uh, mule deer carcasses. So we've got tons of black bear footage coming into these cougar kills and stealing away cougars food in the summer. So anytime black bears are out, we're getting black bears on all of our cameras. Same thing with coyotes. And um, looking at the interactions between those animals and thinking about whether or not that has any true, does it translate to cougars eating more deer because their food is being stolen all the time? Um, or does it have no impact because the cougar's done eating anyway and they move on when they choose to? So we're looking to see if black bears might be pushing cougars off their meal and making them kill even more mule deer. Is that why cougars are eating more mule deer than they might otherwise be? Um, so looking at the whole ecosystem is really important. So not just cougars and deer, but all the other animals that they share the landscape with and compete for access to mule deer with. 
Um, so we're looking to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, not just the cougar piece, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that makes, you know, I was absolutely fascinated by that. Oh, did we lose you? I can nope. hear you. No, nope, so there. Okay, so um, I was just saying that uh, I was absolutely fascinated by the uh, the kill site information um, and just, you know, the, the, how many animals were, you know, frequenting the site. And then, and for well long after the carcass has completely um, been processed as well, like there's nothing left. But there was so much activity there, so very interesting. So now, when you have a mortality, uh, first of all, how many cats have you lost um, since the study of your your subject animals? I think it's seven or eight now. Um, I have to go back to my. We said two, so I have to think about what our total was at. But it's not very many, um, and the different causes have been a couple from hunter harvest, but uh, other reasons as well. So the one that we had most recently was from a conflict with another cougar. So another cougar killed our female and consumed her. I actually skinned out the skull and everything. And I found the puncture marks of the cougar's lower canines into the back of our cougar's skull. And the upper canine teeth marks were all across the back of the head. So you could see how she had been attacked and punctured. And she also had a broken jaw and uh, she had puncture lines around her nose as well. So we could see, piece together uh, the evidence to show that, hey, this cougar was killed by another cougar. I don't know if it was a female or a very young male. All I know is that the puncture marks line up with the size of uh, a mature female. But it could be a young male that's around the same size. Um, so that's been really interesting. Other causes, we had one recently that was caught in a trap or snare. Um, another that was uh, poss possibly poisoned. Um, it was inconclusive, but there were traces of poison in the system. Um, another one was uh, human livestock conflict. So we had a cougar that uh, was found on someone's property and they believed the cougar was going after their livestock. So we are picking up and documenting many different causes of cougar mortality. There are a few we haven't documented yet. Like uh, we haven't had any vehicle strikes yet, but in other places that's known to be a pretty big cause of cougar mortality. So we're also looking at road crossings uh, for cougars to see what the risk is there too. Uh, although we haven't detected that mortality cause just yet. Interesting. Um, now with regards to, uh, I think there was one case of infanticide as well. Um, was it, am I correct in that? I think I read that in one of your studies. Yes, we actually had another one too. So we've had, uh, one collared cougar that when we went to go investigate the, what it was eating, it was a kitten. And then we've had some of our tagged kittens, uh, consumed by predators as well. And it's hard to tell when, uh, you know, something really small is eaten by a predator, which one it was, especially in the summer when there's no tracks that you can see, um, fewer evidence to look at. But we do believe that some of our kittens born on the study were predated by male cougars um, as other uh, occurrences of infanticide. Interesting. So now one of the things I was going to ask you about with regards to... Um... Was there, there you, you mentioned a number of items in their diet, and it, it sounds like by far deer is the biggest in the Okanagan study and the uh, boundary as well as the Kootenai study. Is that correct? Uh, in the Kootenays, we have mostly white-tailed deer and elk and lower numbers okay. of mule deer. In the West Okanagan, it's mainly mule deer and then moose. 
um, with only a couple white tail and I think one elk. <laughs> okay. And it, did you mention there was one bighorn sheep mortality or that was? Yeah. Uh, so we were hoping to detect more sheep on our study. We haven't had any goats. And the only instance we've had so far of bighorn sheep being predated was, interestingly, a collared bighorn sheep sent a mortality signal from this canyon um, on the east side of the valley. So I went to go check it out because one of our collared cougars had been right where that sheep was at the same time in the same day. Um, so we went to go see if our cougar had in fact killed this collared deer or collared sheep. So I hiked in the, with Andrew Walker <laughs> down into a canyon and found this uh, ram predated, but uh, interestingly, there was no sign of cougar predation. It was all bear evidence. So there were piles and piles of bear scat, bear beds, flattened vegetation, everything about it said bear. There was nothing about it that said cougar. Um, so we had to go back to the data and look at it again. And it looked like our, what happened was our cougar possibly predated the sheep. It's hard to tell because there was no other sign by the time we got there. Um, but we think she may have attacked this sheep and then immediately lost it to scavenging bears. So her data showed that she had been in the canyon at the same time that the sheep died. But immediately afterwards, within a couple hours, she was up on the ridge above it. And it looked like she was hanging out, possibly observing these bears eat her food. And then she left. So if we had gone to the cougar's data, we never would have found the sheep dead because her data was all piled on the ridge, not in the canyon. Um, so it's interesting that we detected this event through the collared sheep because we never would have found it otherwise. Um, and that's the only time we've seen um, those two species interact from our cougar perspective. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, and I, I'll just touch a little bit on this, and I know this isn't your necessarily what your study is targeting per se, but uh, I'd like to touch a little bit on it. There was a 1997 study in Alberta, I think Ian Ross published the paper mm -hmm. um, around uh, bighorn mortality at the hands of cougar. And um, it's really interesting that there was, um, they talk about, you know, the high mortality rates, but you're not seeing that in the Okanagan, which is interesting, or in the Kootenays for that matter, but I guess is it because there's not a high population of sheep there, you think? Or because it's it, interesting, I, I one of the stats I've seen that 9% of uh, one sheep, bighorn sheep population in Alberta and 26% of the lambs were killed by one female. So mm -hmm. I found that very interesting. And I, I actually thought your study would show more bighorns in the Okanagan region, in the Kootenai region than, than what we've seen. So just curious of your thoughts on something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the factors in our study is that we don't have too many cougars that do overlap with bighorn sheep range. Mm -hmm. um, so we have, I think, three cougars that overlap substantially with bighorn sheep, and we haven't found any sheep at their kill sites so far. However, we only just collared one of them. So for the most, most of the studies so far, we haven't had very many cougars overlap with sheep. So I think that's part of it. Um, our one cougar on the east side of the valley where this uh, event with the ram occurred, this cougar, uh, has been in a wildfire restricted area because of the big fires on the east side in the summer. So it's possible that that cougar has eaten sheep and we haven't been able to access 
um, that side of the valley because of the restrictions to see what she's been eating. So it's possible that we just, because of these reasons, aren't detecting the bighorn predation that we might expect. Um, but we are hoping that once we get our last few callers out, hopefully we'll have some more cougar activity overlapping with sheep to be able to look at this better. Um, you know, maybe target some areas where sheep occur if we can. <laughs> we can't always choose where we'd find a cougar, but uh, we can do our best. Um, but another thing too is that uh, cougars tend to eat the prey that overlap in their range. So as long as there's food available, cougars will eat any animal that they come across that they can successfully predate. Um, so any cougars, and there's been some studies in other places like on mines in Alberta, uh, like a, led by Megan Beale, where they had a couple of cougars that overlapped bighorn sheep herds on a mine, for instance. And uh, that's the main, mainly the food that they ate because that's mainly the food that was there in the range. Um, they overlapped mainly sheep and there weren't too many other animals around to eat. Um, so when you see specialization like that, sometimes it means a cougar has just established there because there's a food source. Um, and if there were other deer and things around, they probably eat some of those too, based on availability. And some specialization has been observed, but it's really rare um, and uh, not always easy to prove that there's specifically targeting a certain species because they just like it better rather than that's just what's around uh, where they live. And right. cougar, Tar sorry, go ahead. Uh, basically a target rich environment. So it's not that they're, yeah, if they were deer there, they'd be eating deer. If they were elk, they'd eat elk. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they are tend they tend to be a uh, generalist predator. So they'll eat whatever is food <laughs> where they live. So, I, you know, often I hear from hunters, I'll oh, kill every, you know, cat you see or whatever, because they're going to kill all the sheep um, that, you know, I guess if there's a high percentage of cats in a specific area that there could be increased mortality for bighorn sheep in a bighorn sheep area, but, or sheep in general, maybe thin horns as well. But um, so generally that's not the consensus, it, you know, what's kind of the argument. I know Jim Williams in his book, he was very, he worked very closely with the houndsmen and he was very careful. You know, he, he, he tried to educate hunters that, you know, cats aren't necessarily the evil that everyone perceives them to be that. Yeah. There may be high predation, but you know, if you have a very balanced area and you have a, a cougar with a wide range that they're not going to have an overly high, um, you know, kill rate on, on sheep is my understanding. Am I correct on that? Or am I, is am I out to lunch on it? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And the other thing too, to think about, um, is that if we remove and target cougars to removal too, and this has been tried in a few places for big orange sheep and for mule deer, uh, species that are in decline to remove a bunch of cougars and hopefully that'll protect you know, that vulnerable, vulnerable prey species from predation, um, it doesn't always work that way. So cougars uh, defend territories very strongly against other cougars, especially males. Um, so if you remove cougars from an area where there's sheep predation, you might be inviting more young cougars in who will feast on them. So it's really hard to keep them at bay if you're continually removing them. So it's not always the best answer because uh, if you remove an established cougar who's been defending that territory for years, um, you might have some dispersing young males that aren't familiar with what preys there and they could just see a bunch of sheep and go for it. Um, so it might end up making things worse uh, for sheep by trying to get rid of all the cougars in the area because there is some social 
um, behavioral stuff at play here with cougars and uh, the boundaries of their territory and the things that they know where to hunt deer certain times of year. They know where to hunt sheep if they want sheep. Um, they're familiar with the range. So um, yeah, it's not always uh, the solution that you think it is. <laughs> yeah. Unintended consequences and the ever moving, you know, balance of one thing affects another. And sometimes it has unintended consequences. So interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So I know there's tons more on your study and a bunch of other stuff I'd like to touch on. Um, obviously, we know we're we're going to get this great paper coming down the road. Now, I know you've touched before in other talks about uh, the Provincial Cougar Management Plan. Um, I'm guessing a lot of your work will influence that. Um, and, you know, do we do you know any timelines that the government has on this new management plan? Have you heard? I don't know much about it, I, you know, uh, but I'm curious to your thoughts on that. Yeah, so we are hoping that the Southern BC Cougar Project will help inform this plan. We are also working with Flinrow currently in the West Okanagan to do a density estimate using biopsy sampling for cougars to uh, better evaluate how many cougars there are in the area. And that will help the provincial management plan in terms of assessing how many cougars are here in the first place. Um, but, uh, and also our data will help contribute to things like cougar survival. You know, what is the average age class for cougars in this part of the province? Um, what are the causes of mortality? Are there habitat use, you know, issues around cougars? Uh, and their prey, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know the timelines mean as government, so it's hard to say when some of these big documents are coming forward. I'm hoping that our work in the next few years will inform it, uh, and I hope it won't come out too soon because I'd like our results to be a part of it and um, you know have more impact that way for our study. So I'm hopeful that you know hopefully a few years after we're wrapped up here that that provincial management plan will come forward using not just our Cougar project data, but like I say, some of these other projects in the Chilcotin, uh, looking at cougars and caribou, um, they can help inform this provincial wide plan as well. So it won't just be based on our study, but other places too. Um, so yeah, I'm hopeful that'll come out hopefully in the next five years or so. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, now, in terms of hunters and, you know, backcountry users, if they have a cougar experience and, and I guess in your three subject areas that we talked about or your stud, three study areas, um, is there something they can do? Does it, is it helpful if you get any data from uh, people in the backcountry that experience a cougar or they see a kill or something like that, a kill site? Is there something they can do to help you? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple things. If you did find a cougar kill in any of our three study areas, you can contact me. I do have a data sheet and we do have volunteers that will fill them out. Whether they're from a collared cougar or not, it's still informative for our study if you determine that it is a cougar kill. Even if it's a mule deer mortality and it's killed by something else that may be of interest to Chloe. So it is helpful to document different causes of mortality for the two species in these study areas. Um, if people do find fresh cougar tracks or uh, see a cougar or have one on their camera, a lot of people have trail cameras out in the backcountry and might get a collared cougar, um, please let us know. So there are sometimes our callers don't connect all the time with satellite and we might not get an update for a cougar in a while. Um, so sometimes we've had people email us pictures of a collared cougar and we'll look at it and go, oh my gosh, that's C8. We haven't seen her in two months, you know, perfect. They have a coordinate. We can go and try to get her collar fixed up. 
Uh, so anything like that is really helpful for us in the study areas. If you have information outside the study areas and it's interesting, I just like to see it anyway, even if I can't use it. Um, I love to see people's footage from their cameras and uh, hear about their experiences. Cool. So if someone wants to reach out, how do they get a hold of you, Siobhan? That uh, would be bccougarproject at gmail.com is our email. We also have a website is www.bccougarproject.weebly.com. And you can check out our blog post, media, podcast. I'll post a link to this podcast too. You can listen to it again. <laughs> and uh, read about our project updates as well. We send out updates twice a year and post them on our website so people can learn what we're finding um, and new updates on how to volunteer as well. Cool. Uh, that, that awesome. Really, really fascinating study. Uh, love following your stuff. And just, yeah, anyone that's listening, uh, we'll post the links here. There's just so much interesting footage and data and, and information. And you've done some very cool webinars. So appreciate all the work you've done there and look forward to getting that paper. And once you get it, share it with us and we'll have you back on and learn about all your findings. Amazing. Thank you too for having me on today. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I hope I've inspired a few people to, you know, look into cougars. Don't, uh, yeah, just uh, learn lots about them. They're not as scary as you think. They have very interesting behaviors and they're all around us. So mm -hmm. it's good to learn about their uh, role in our environment. One last question. I think this is Ranella Ask Steve Ranella. They always debate the name of the cougar. So what's your favorite cougar name? My favorite name. Yeah, uh, there's 50, I, right? <laughs> yeah, at least. Um, I don't know. I think Mountain Screamer is a good one or Ghost Cat. I think those are fun. <laughs> I've heard I Ghost mean, Cat always, before. Yeah, Ghost Cat. Um, but yeah, if you ever hear the, the call of a cougar, it is really eerie. Um, so I like Mountain Screamer because I feel like it really encompasses their presence in the mountains and the sound that they make. So it's yeah, pretty that's, cool. That's screech. Yeah. You hear it <laughs> once, you know it. Uh, very cool. Mountain Screamer. Love it. Thanks again, Siobhan, and uh, appreciate your time. Amazing. Thank you.